traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-28 Bestiarius The trip from Emesa to Aradus typically took three days. Given the occasion, Julia Domna was likely accompanied by her family, including her father, Julius Bassianus, her older sister, Julia Mesa, and Mesa's two daughters, Julia Bassiana and Julia Mamaya. There was also her uncle Iamblichus, his son Sulpicius, her brother-in-law, the military tribune Avidus Alexianus, and her cousin Julius Alexander, the former Armenian prince. All in all, a pretty sizable party. But, of course, her family would have been a small contingent among a veritable army of slaves and attendants. And even these would have been just a small fraction of the busy caravan traffic from Palmyra via Emesa to the coast. Each night, the servants would find a commodious spot and erect the family's tents. Sleeping out in the open desert, Julia may have reflected on her forebears, the Emesenes before Emesa ranging up and down the Orontes without a permanent home. But it's more likely her thoughts were fixed on Eridus, and the much longer journey still to come. Though a minor port in Roman times, the coastal island of Eridus was steeped in ancient history. As Canaanite Arvad, it had been conquered by the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III over 1,500 years before. Then, a few centuries later, it had nearly been wiped out by the attacks of the Sea Peoples. In 853 BC, soldiers from Arvad had joined other Phoenicians, along with Aramaeans, Israelites, Egyptians, and Arabs, to fight the Assyrians at the Battle of Karkar. But despite the alliance, the holding action was brief, and, like pretty much everyone else, Arvad had ended up a vassal of the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and now the Romans. Aradus would have seen some difficult goodbyes. Not only was Julia, a 17-year-old girl, leaving the only home she'd ever known, to cross the Roman world and marry a man she barely remembered, but... 
even more poignantly, no one had the slightest idea whether they'd ever see her again. Even assuming the best-case scenario, her voyage went safely, she avoided the plague, and her new husband didn't get on Commodus's bad side, a Roman governor could be transferred anywhere in the empire. The odds the couple would make their way back to Syria were pretty remote. Despite leaving her family behind, Julia wasn't going alone. Many of the slaves, attendants, and tutors she'd grown up with would be sent with her to help ease the transition. And, of course, she'd be taking all her valuables and belongings, not to mention the hard assets and titles representing her substantial dowry. Domna's route wasn't recorded, but using the delightfully detailed map at brilliantmaps.com, which I've posted on the website, we can make some educated guesses. From Aradus, she would have sailed to either Antioch or the Cypriot capital of Paphos, and from there onto Rhodes. It was at Rhodes that the real journey'd begin. Two long weeks across the Aegean, Ionian, and Tyrrhenian seas to the Roman port of Ostia. A few more days would bring her to the major Gallic port of Massalia, modern Marseille. From there, it was a short jaunt to the mouth of the Rhone River, and the final leg of her long journey. Sailing upriver from the coast into south-central Gaul, Julia would have left behind the mild Mediterranean climate for something cooler. Not drastically, but noticeably so. And though Emesa itself was intensely cultivated, the lush greenery of the Gallic countryside would have been a striking contrast to the familiar landscape of central Syria. Her destination, Lugdunum, modern Lyon, was the second most important city in the Western Empire, with a population of around 200,000. In addition to being a provincial capital, it was also a financial center, housing a Roman mint and several banks. It also had manufacturing centers for pottery, metalwork, and weaving, and a complex of docks and warehouses to service the lucrative river traffic. From its central location, roads led south toward Massalia and Rome, west toward the English Channel, and north toward the Rhine, making it a common staging ground for Germanic campaigns. Lugdunum's prominent role meant the city was flush with the latest Roman amenities, including aqueducts, fountains, public baths, and wealthy homes. Apart from the purely visual, Julia likely noticed other regional differences. At least since arriving in Ostia, she would have found that most people spoke not Greek or Aramaic, but Latin. At the time of Severus's proposal, Domna probably spoke not a word of Latin. But she would have taken advantage of the long voyage to study the language intensely. As the wife of a Roman governor, she'd be expected to play hostess to high-ranking Roman officials. And not doing so in Latin especially in the West, would be a major embarrassment for her husband. Aside from language, there was also the matter of dress. Julia Domnad spent most of her life wearing the latest Syrian fashions, including precious silks and fine jewelry. It must have been disheartening to learn of the painfully basic dress code for respectable Roman women. The main staples were the stola, a floor-length dress worn over a tunic, and the pala, 
A glorified shawl dyed in a basic range of colors and fastened with a brooch. And then there were cosmetics. The Roman ideal was simple natural beauty, and excessive makeup was considered deceitful, sometimes even bordering on witchcraft. This was likely hard to process, since in the East, makeup was used liberally by both sexes, and even considered therapeutic. Whatever her personal preferences, Julia likely wore the stola, the pala, and minimal makeup for her reunion with her husband-to-be. However she presented herself, Julia Domna was, literally, the woman of his dreams. After learning his proposal had been accepted, the 42-year-old Lucius Septimius Severus had dreamed a very intense dream. In it, Faustina, the wife of Marcus Aurelius, had prepared the couple a wedding chamber in the Temple of Rome and Venus near the Imperial Palace. Severus may have told this dream to Julia when they reunited, but there'd also been several others. Severus being saluted by Rome personified, Severus with water gushing from his palms, and Severus playing the land and sea like an orchestra. For the moment, Severus may have considered it wise to keep those dreams to himself. Either way, Domna's arrival was cause for celebration. The gift of an iron ring would mark the engagement and Severus would have already consulted the augurs to pick an auspicious date. Since his older brother Geta was serving as proconsul of Sicily, it's unlikely he could have left his province to attend. It's also unknown whether an Emocene priest might have accompanied Julia Domna to play some part in the ceremony. The wedding would have been attended by friends, colleagues, and local officials. In their presence, the couple would sacrifice an animal, join hands, and invoke the blessings of the gods. Then the usual. Gifts were exchanged, toasts were made, good Gallic wine was drank, and I'm sure someone's uncle said something totally inappropriate. At the end of the ceremony, Julia walked in procession to her new home, where attendants carried her over the threshold to her new husband waiting within. Candles out, and scene. Apart from everyone speaking Latin, Julia may have found Lugdunum less alien than she'd thought. As a major trade hub, the city had a healthy share of foreign-born citizens, including some from Anatolia and even Syria. The city also hosted temples to a variety of gods. In addition to the Capitoline triad of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, there was the Gallo-Roman god Sucellus, the Phrygian goddess Sibylle, and the triple mother goddesses known as the Matres. Even the city's name of Lugdunum, or Fortress of Lug, came from a popular Celtic warrior god. Juliet hardly settled into her new life before finding out she was pregnant. In April of 188, the 18-year-old Julia Domna gave birth to a son named Lucius Septimius Bassianus. Along with the family name of Septimius, the boy's name honored Severus's grandfather, Lucius, and Julia's father, Bassianus. And though he'd later be known as the common enemy of mankind, for now we'll just call him adorable little Caracalla. 
Later that year, even as Severus's governorship was winding down, Julia learned she was pregnant again. Before the second child was born, Severus, Julia, and little Caracalla had to pull up stakes, bid farewell to Lugdunum, and make their first family trip to the big city. I mean the real big city. The Rome of the late 2nd century was a city at the height of its glory. For you cinephiles out there, this is the Rome of the movie Gladiator, so take that for what it's worth. While the Antonine Plague had taken a toll on the empire, the capital still held a population of roughly a million. After its later decline, no other western city matched those numbers until the 19th century. Most of the monuments associated with ancient Rome, with the exception of a few arches and baths, were already present. And we can be fairly certain that Julia Domna from Emissa on the Orontes had never seen anything quite like it. The family settled into Severus's apartments in Rome, while he waited on word of his next posting. In the meantime, he used his local contacts to get a handle on the true state of the empire. As it happened, that state was pretty precarious. In a replay of the era of Tiberius and Sejanus, Commodus had retired from Rome to his country estates, leaving control of the empire in the hands of his latest favorite, the Phrygian freedman Cleander. Not content with the timidity of Sejanus, Cleander set himself above the Praetorian prefects by creating the new role of Pugione, or dagger-bearer. But Cleander's main occupation was selling state offices, including army commands, governorships, and even Suffolk consulships, to the highest bidder. Meanwhile, the 28-year-old Commodus, in the twelfth year of his reign, spent most of his time in a delusional fantasy world. He was the new Hercules, the ultimate gladiator, the killer of beasts, the perfect physical specimen, and, above all, Rome's godlike benevolent protector. It was pretty unsettling, and everyone was wondering when the tether would finally snap. In March of 189, Julia gave birth to her second son, named Publius Septimius Geta, after Severus's father and brother. And... Wait, that's strange. One-year-old Caracalla seems to be glaring at the newborn Geta. I'm sure it's just my imagination. Probably just gas or something. Anyway, by the time of Geta's birth, Severus had learned that his next posting was succeeding his brother as proconsul of Sicily. Later that spring, the family left Rome for Syracuse. The Sicilian capital had been described by Cicero as the greatest Greek city, and the most beautiful of them all. After being captured and looted during the Second Punic War, Syracuse had been forced to adapt to a new role, as central trade hub between the eastern and western halves of the empire. While most of its statuary now resided in Rome, it still held an enormous Greek theater, along with fountains, temples, and other symbols of ancient glory. Severus's contacts in Rome likely kept the couple updated on major events. As 189 rolled into 190, Cleander's machinations grew ever more outrageous. The year saw a record 25 Suffolk consulships, one of which was actually purchased by Severus. 
At the same time, violent convulsions were becoming more frequent. A food shortage in Rome led to major riots targeting Cleander. When he called out the Praetorian Guard to crush the revolt, he was opposed by the new city prefect, the former Syrian governor Publius Helvius Pertinax. Pertinax used the urban cohorts to check the Praetorians, and the desperate Pugione fled Rome for Commodus's villa. Before he could reach it, the emperor had Cleander seized and beheaded, his son killed, and a few other notables executed for a good measure. While the riot was quelled, the core dynamic remained unchanged, and soon Commodus had handed power to a new clique of favorites, including his mistress Marcia, his eunuch chamberlain Eclectus, and his new praetorian prefect Quintus Aemilius Latus. At the end of his Sicilian governorship, in 190 AD, Severus returned with his family to Rome. The moment he arrived, he was apparently put on trial for consulting seers and astrologers about the imperial position. The charges were likely true and amounted to treason, but they were eventually dismissed and his accuser was crucified. Whatever the details of the affair, it appears that either Severus's temporal power or Julia's supernatural power had overcome their first serious threat. Later that year, Julia received important news from Emissa. First off, her cousin Gaius Julius Sulpicius had fathered a son named Julius Aurelius Sulpicius Uranius Antoninus, or Uranius for short. Second, Julia learned that her brother-in-law, Avidus Alexianus, had been promoted to procurator of Rome's food supply. The position was based in the Roman port of Ostia, meaning that Julia Domna and her sister Julia Mesa would soon be reunited. The last piece of news was both more bizarre and more tragic. Julia Domna learned that her cousin, the Armenian bestiarius Julius Alexander, had been hunted down and killed by Commodus. The story is briefly related by Cassius Dio and requires a bit of unpacking, but it basically goes like this. Shortly after Cleander's fall, Commodus had traveled east to Antioch. One item on his agenda was a bit of lion hunting. After all, being the new Hercules means constantly showing everyone what a great hunter you are. While assembling a party of local notables, Commodus must have heard about the famous animal fighter and former Armenian prince Julius Alexander. So Alexander was summoned from nearby Emesa to join the expedition. During the hunting trip, Alexander did the one thing you just did not do to Commodus, namely show everyone that you're a better hunter than he is. In the words of Cassius Dio, Alexander brought down a lion by a lucky cast of his javelin while on horseback. At the time, Commodus likely praised his hunting skills and congratulated him on his feat. Then, the minute the party split up, Commodus sent imperial assassins to get rid of Alexander. Back in Emesa, Alexander learned he was being hunted and preemptively killed the assassins, which dealt with the immediate problem, but Commodus was unlikely to just let the matter drop. 
So Alexander decided his best course of action was to leave Emesa and ride hard for the Euphrates. Before doing so, Dio says that Alexander put out of the way all his own enemies at Emesa, which is one of those curious nuggets that begs a few questions. Were these personal enemies he'd acquired during his short stay, or were they enemies of Alexander's family, of Julia Domna's family, maybe even rivals in the local Emesene power structure? It's impossible to say, but interesting either way. Alexander's final act before leaving Emesa was collecting his young lover, and this was apparently the act that did him in. As Dio records, he would have escaped had he not carried a favorite along with him. He was himself a most excellent horseman, but he would not think of abandoning the lad, who was tired out, and so when he was being overtaken, he killed both the boy and himself. It was a tragic end for an interesting figure, and for Julia Domna, it was a personal loss. For the better part of a year, the family stayed in Rome, while Severus awaited word of his next posting. In a welcome development, Domna's sister, Julia Mesa, and her young nieces, Mamaya and Bassiana, had arrived with the Vetus Alexianus in Ostia. The short distance from the port to the capital restored the comforts of an extended family. It's also during this time that Julia likely became acquainted with the city prefect, Severus's old commander, the 64-year-old Publius Helvius Pertinax. Unprecedented for a man of his position, Pertinax was the son of a freedman, or, put another way, the son of a former slave. Still, he was widely respected and well-liked by the Roman people, if not always by the Senate or other entrenched elites. Partly to counter this, Pertinax had established close ties with the new Praetorian prefect, Quintus Aemilius Latus. In late 191, Severus was given the governorship of Upper Pannonia, while his brother Geta was assigned the province of Lower Moesia. Both territories were strategically important, located near Italy, and held five imperial legions between them. The assignments were a bit unusual, since neither brother had ever commanded troops along the Danube, which was usually a prerequisite. The postings were granted by Commodus on the recommendation of his new Praetorian prefect, Latus. Like Severus and Geta, Latus was an African provincial, in his case from the coastal city of Tainai. Another likely African, Aurelius Paulus Tarentianus, was put in charge of Dacia, while another, Clodius Albinus, was made governor of Britannia. And if this all sounds like someone putting pieces into place, well, you're right. But please don't say anything to Commodus. Julia was likely surprised to learn that she wouldn't be accompanying her husband. Commodus preferred to keep the children of provincial governors in close proximity, as insurance for their good behavior. With a critical posting like Upper Pannonia, there was really no way around it. When Severus left Rome for the provincial capital of Carnuntum, Julia and the boys remained behind. 
In Rome, 192 dawned with the consulship of Commodus and the city prefect Pertinax. But it was well into the year when Julia learned of the emperor's plans for the refoundation of Rome. First and foremost, please stop calling it Rome, because now and forevermore the capital should be called by its proper name of Colonia Commodiana. Commodus also expanded his names and titles to twelve, so that each one could replace the name of a Roman month. The legions were renamed the Commodiani, the Senate was now the Commodian Fortunate Senate, and the fleet importing grain from Africa was renamed the Alexandria Commodiana Togata. Commodus even repurposed the Colossus of Nero for a second time. He cut off the head with the sunray crown, replaced it with one of his own, then put a club in its hand and a lion at its feet, to make it look like Hercules. Which, okay, that actually sounds pretty cool, but that's beside the point. At the plebeian games that November, Julia was able to see her emperor on full display. Commodus started the first day by killing a hundred bears from the safety of an elevated platform. He then speared other beasts at short range while similarly protected, then walked the floor killing tame animals brought to him in nets. After dispatching a tiger, an elephant, and a hippopotamus, Commodus took a short break, then came back to the ring to fight as a gladiator. After each staged victory, Julia watched the Roman Senate erupt into cheers and applause. Though their behavior was clearly fear-based, it's unlikely she walked away with a healthy respect for Rome's leadership. After two weeks of games, it was pretty clear to Julia, and pretty much everyone else, that Commodus had basically lost it. But like Caligula and Nero, the emperor was still young and the Romans could look forward to long decades of similar behavior. Except, on New Year's Day 193, Julia learned that Commodus was dead, allegedly of natural causes, and Severus's old superior, the city prefect Pertinax, had been hailed as emperor by the Praetorian Guard. After confirmation by the Senate, the new emperor ordered the statues of Commodus thrown down, his name struck from all public records, and his recent rash of renamings overturned. For Julia Domna, it was a very new year, presided over by a man well-known and well-regarded by her husband. Even better, Howard passed from the Antonines to the new Helvii dynasty without a violent power struggle, hinting perhaps of plans made in advance. Either way, Julia hoped the coming reign of Pertinax would bring good fortune to her family.